when you grow up, you tend to get told that the world is the way it is, and your your life is just to live your life inside the world. Try not to bash into the walls too much. Uh, uh, try to have a nice family life. Uh, have fun. Save a little money. Um, but life. That's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact, and that is everything around you that you call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can, you can build your own things that other people can use. And the minute that you understand that you can poke life and actually something will, you know, if you push in, something will pop out the other side, that you can, you can change it, you can mold it, um, that's maybe the most important thing. Welcome to episode seven of the Noted Podcast. For those of you keeping track, that's 0.07, or wait, 0. No, let me start over. <laughs> let me start over. I already screwed up. Um, 0. 0.7.0, right? Yes. Okay. Jesus Christ. Why did, why did I ever do, start doing that? That was a crazy thing to do. Okay. Uh, welcome to Noted Podcast, episode 0. 0.7.0. We're joined today with Papa Wasa Chifi Nadom and my co-host, Michael Goldstein. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Chiefy, how are you? I'm great, and thanks for, for having me. I really appreciate it. So we wanted to have you on because you had a LinkedIn post that went viral. And I actually first saw it because it was reported by a journalist, I think from Ghana, uh, that was describing the uh, essentially the contents of the LinkedIn posts and the proposal you were putting forth. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I searched around your name to see kind of what your background was. And I stumbled across your Twitter and was just amazed by uh, how, how much we have in common with regards to our views on Bitcoin. And so we wanted to have you on and kind of talk about yourself and talk about the post. Okay, well, great. Yeah, so um, all this, well, first, let me give you some background context. Yeah, my name, um, you know, I'm a member of a family business group. I'm a lawyer. Um, I used to work in project finance in New York and in 2011, I moved back to Ghana to work for my family companies, um, you know, that started by my, my father and we have a diversified business group in Ghana. And now we're in Ghana, Liberia, the U S, um, hospitality and finance were the things we've been most known for. We had one of the first, uh, licensed fund managers, uh, on when the Ghana stock exchange opened in 1993 some hotels and um, we do banking now. So we have a small bank in Illinois and uh, one in Ghana and one in Liberia in our group. And, um, you know, so I've been following anything finance related um, really since um, 2008, nine, while I was at work, um, we started a, our, the first bank we started was a savings and loan in Ghana. And um, we started from scratch, built it up. So we've always been looking at banking software, banking technology, mobile money, um, both for our businesses and also, you know, as an angle for when we raise funds with businesses. Um, and so I, you know, I, I got into Bitcoin in particular, um, really, you know, 
I I'd heard about it, you know, and, and in the developing world, everybody's been talking about financial inclusion. That's why we got into this, getting people into uh, banking services. And um, so, you know, mobile money was really a lot bigger um, earlier on, right? And I studied that very intensely, looking at Safaricom and the models and how that type of new digital money worked and how, it, uh, you know, and how it took off really in, really in Kenya. Um, but, you know, we also would hear about Bitcoin and, and what, what was going on. It wasn't really until 2013. I think the, the real point where I started paying attention was when I saw the Winklevoss twins on CNBC. I think this was in 2013 talking about their ETF, you know, and, um, and then there were some big articles, a number of, of papers. And I actually, uh, you know, I sent some, one of my posts I put on my LinkedIn profile was about one of the first emails I sent to our business group, all the directors of the company, I said, hey, guys, there's this thing called Bitcoin and look at what it is, right? And it's pretty crazy. You know, it's um, at the time, uh, PayPal was, was, was not accepting customers from Ghana and Nigeria and a bunch of other places. And, um, and there's this thing called de-risking in the banking industry. There have been a lot of problems for smaller countries getting access to international finance. So we were looking at that. And, um, and I actually was interested in the mining. Um, my background in law, I used to work in project finance, but I used to work on energy projects. So LNG projects, uh, a little bit of solar, uh, waste energy, things like that. So I've always been interested in energy. And I looked at the energy consumption issue. And at the, at the time, Ghana was going through a, a power crisis, couldn't keep the lights on. So I was thinking about mining in 2013, but then I was like, hmm, I don't really know how this will work when, you know, or how moral it will be for me to run my generator to keep this equipment on, right? So if you're running on diesel, but um, so we, we've been following it since really then. And, um, you know, I watched the price movements, watched all the arguments, but I really, you know, was focused as just a, an observer is this is okay. This is a disruptive technology we need to watch relative to our business. Um, we, you know, and I've been really consumed with our business work, particularly financing. We raised some money for our banks in Ghana and, and also we acquired this bank in Chicago. You know, a lot of the work has been focused on that and the technology related to those businesses. Um, it wasn't really until, um, sep uh, you know, mid this year, that I, that I think sort of a fever pitch started to emerge in terms of the financial services sector paying close attention to Bitcoin. You know, there, there, was, there was a lot more investors talking about it. And, um, you know, you could see this sort of shift um, in the investor consciousness from traditional uh, assets to Bitcoin. And, um, and I really got in, really, really digged in once the, the China ban occurred and, you know, the price action happened. And I said, okay, now it's time to get back. I mean, I opened a Coinbase account a long time ago, never really touched it. But once uh, th that happened, I said, okay, now we, we really need to look at this very carefully. Um, and uh, I, I also happened to be uh, in Paris. So I stopped by uh, Maison de Bitcoin there and talked to some people and, you know, I, and I, and saw some strange things like you know when i saw the number of people lining up to do transactions there physically like you know with their debit cards buying uh bitcoins you know the the, the different groups of people i saw coming in I, I i was like this is this is crazy um so 
we've been we've been paying attention to to, to it since then. And and this particular argument occurred because as a, relative to that fever pitch I was talking to you about. Um, if you watch Bloomberg, for example, um, you know I guess yeah from the middle of the year last year. Um, it's Bitcoin started becoming a, just like a little thing people would talk about and then all the hosts would laugh. And it was almost sort of like a drinking game, you know, that everybody came on Bloomberg and say, okay, so what do you think about Bitcoin? They would ask, but then I started noticing that offhand, they would comment that, okay, the Bitcoin stories are the, um, most read stories on the Bloomberg terminal. And, you know, if, when, when, if you understand investment, you pay attention to what other investors are paying attention to, Right. And as I started going into the technical issues, learning more, um, you know, many different investors, it was really a, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, a very intense period from the middle of last year where I was talking to all my business group and my close family, explaining to them, okay, this is what this is. This is why you need to invest in it and why you need to own at least one of these things. Um, and, um, And then the portfolio theory that uh, you know, I heard it too many times from too many relatively sophisticated investors, all looking at the same asset class, making the digital goal comparison, talking about the extensibility, the durability. Um, it, 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 so once that came in, you know, I, I actually started making for a personal investment case for all my family members. You know? But then, I, then I, I pulled that back from them and I actually advised them to stop trading and not to actually hold it themselves. Because, and we can get more into that later because of some of the um, security risks, hacking risks, and other things. But um, I wrote the article on LinkedIn. I was in Ghana at the time, and I was, and I was um, starting to still see more signs of interest in this. You know, there were local people who wanted to talk about it. When I um, uh, asked around, you know, if people wanted to meet and find out about what it is, there was a very large in-person response from investors and other interested people. Uh, I found out about, there's a, a, a Ghanaian, his, uh, Nina Kukwainer, he's in the Internet Hall of Fame. He helped spread uh, internet uh, adoption in Africa. And he started mining in 2016 in Ghana. And so I was looking at what he was doing and I followed him before. Um, but it just, uh, it seemed like there was enough, there were enough signs for me to come out and say in public, as an investor, as someone who works in regulated industries, enough science for me to say, um, people need to pay attention to this asset class. And now, um, you know, now because, excuse me, we are at the press, we are potentially at a precipice where institutional investment could become a norm, right? So I, I wrote the article because I noticed that um, I was learning about nodes, you know, I looked at the, um, uh, it used to be 21.co, uh, their, their node uh, tracker graphics. And I looked at it, I said, well, there's no nodes anywhere in Africa, right? And, you know, as over the course of the year, I travel, I go to Johannesburg, I talk to everybody, say, hey, do you know about Bitcoin? People say, oh, yeah, you know, find these little connections. But I really, you know, but the fever pitch in the U.S. was not anywhere, really, on the continent in terms of the business news, like really all day, every day, really, nowadays, it was not there. So I thought, look, um, if this is the internet of money, right? If that's what this is, then um, it should be inclusive and it should be inclusive globally. 
you know, and, and if you look at that map of nodes, you'll see that, you know, South America, you'll see Asia, you'll see United States, you'll see some parts of Europe, but there are very clear dark spots. And that was concerning to me because I was like, you know, if this is a once in a generation um, uh, uh, development of a new asset class that will bring in new flows and also um, uh, provides potentially significant price appreciation for the investors, the, you know, the, the, I would like personally to see the, um, a broad group of people involved in that, particularly people in countries that have been traditionally left out of finance and financial opportunity. So I, I, I made the argument because through, through a number of um, uh, logical steps, because one of the problems, um, you know, in encouraging adoption of Bitcoin uh, in developing countries is many people don't have a lot of disposable income. So I thought, who could take a significant position in this asset? And there are some investment funds, but even many of them have trouble raising funds. Um, and uh, in my and I follow central banks just in terms of business. And I said, well, these people, these are the best suited entities because of their high reserves, right? So I, I put that post out there and it, it's been, uh, you know, it's been a, this is something that is really like a passionate thing for me and also a social thing for me. This is like, um, I guess, my corporate social responsibility type of thing, because I just think that, you know, this is something that uh, these countries should not be left out of. And currently, uh, based on uh, how it's propagating, at least from the level of people who are so interested and who are potentially monitoring transactions so much that they, they feel they need to have a full node, the dearth of them lets you know that there, that, 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 that investor and individual consciousness is not there. So, and, 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 and I'm hoping that this post will um, help raise that awareness. I've gotten very good responses from people, um, both in the financial world, um, some in the regulatory world. People do understand it. You know, there, 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 it's, we're still in a very, I think we're still in a very fringe area. Um, I saw, I don't know if you read that New York times post, everybody's getting rich on Bitcoin, but you're not, except for that, that one, did you, you guys read that? I mean, I, I read it and I said, Hmm, this is an interesting take on this. Um, because, uh, I felt that the institutional investor was completely absent from this, from this, this story. And, um, and to me, that is the story, you know, everything starts somewhere. Everything has its own, its, its most fervent advocates. But um, I think we've reached the stage where, I don't you know, uh, depending on your politics or your view, people may not like this, but the reality of, the, of this asset class is that um, the future may likely be determined by large institutional investors. That's, that's really, I think, what is gonna drive the story in the next year at least in the next 24 months. And so um, that is the story I'm, I'm following uh, fervently. And, and, and as you guys see on Twitter that, you know, we're, there, there's, you know, a group, I, I, the, the number of articles and arguments for this is really uh, rising and, and they're getting more and more professional and technical, which is a good thing. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because on the other side of the argument, you know, you have people like Warren Buffett coming out strongly saying that, you know, you should sell your Bitcoins, you should get out of Bitcoin, you shouldn't get involved, but then not providing any arguments to back up that view. Uh, in fact, he admits to not knowing or understanding it. So there's a huge disconnect between one side, which is very sophisticated and has a clear understanding of this new phenomenon and is bullish, and the other side, which admits to lacking any expertise in the matter and is very bearish. Yeah, that, that, uh, I love Warren Buffett, right? And so, I mean, um, I, our business group has studied him. You know, I read his reports. Um, I, you know, I've been in the stock market when I was a lawyer. I, I would, you know, if I ever got a bonus, I would go on the market to try and pay off my student loans. So I've been following investment strategies, and particularly his for years, right? And I mean, and I think that, you know, you know, you do, you should take his comments in context of what he has actually said. And he will tell you personally that if he doesn't see a moat, right? Um, if he, if he doesn't understand what he's investing in, and if he can't tell you what's, if, you know, if he can't tell you with certainty that he thinks that business will be around and growing in 20, 50, hundred years, in many cases, he stays away. And, um, if you watch even his investment moves, um, you know, he, I think he recently uh, said that he missed the boat on Apple and made a calculation. And I, and I watched his investments in IBM quite um, carefully. And that's one area where he also said that he may have made a, a mistake in terms of his bullishness on IBM in particular up, up to a certain point. So no one is infallible, even though, you know, it, Warren Buffett is a, a, a wonderful um, figure in the investment world because he can explain his approach in a very folksy, you know, uh, main street approachable way. Right. But, you know, when it comes to something as, as strange as Bitcoin for someone who takes that very meat and potatoes approach to investment, I, I you know, I, I would expect him not to um, really, you know, he's near the peak of his career um, and he can have, everybody has their own uh, differing opinions. Um, and he's not known really for calling the next technology trends. That's not his his forte. Yeah, right. That's true. And it's funny because on uh, for my other investments in terms of like equity investing, I fully agree with him that not only on the value investing angle, but also in the index investing of being diversified and um, kind of not trying to beat the market by actively trading. And... Yet, I think that if we do analyze Bitcoin's moats and we do analyze it from a value investing framework, I do think that it fits the criteria of being something that is undervalued today. Uh, and it's cognitively, it's very hard to make that argument or to uh, reason about it because if you look at a chart, it's gone up an astronomical amount. So uh, to say that something's undervalued when the chart looks the way it does, uh, it's challenging. It, it, it is challenging. And, you know, and, and once again, this is, um, you know, this is such an atypical asset class, right? And there are a number of different technical analyses that I think have rigor that you can use to look at it. 
Um, so if you take, for example, uh, some people call it greater fool theory or, you know, um, we, we live in a, we live in a environment where there are many, um, I would say eye popping assets. You know, if you look at art, right. If you look at, um, uh, the prices of stocks at the moment in the United States, right. Um, uh, real estate, right. You know, I was, I used to live in New York and, um, people would, if you invest in real estate and, you know, you get a, a 10 X return, right. Due to leverage, people think that's great. But on the other side, you think, well, now I wouldn't be able to, with my starting salary that I had when I bought the house, I wouldn't be able to afford this same house. Right. Um, and so there's, you know, huge appreciation in prices of various assets with, in many cases, very, very high returns um, that people don't really question. And I, you know, and, but I think the best, uh, the first starting point is the digital gold point. When you look at the market cap of, of gold, when you look at the rise since the, two, the year 2000 and, and the change, you know, and the, and the uh, campaign to turn gold into an asset class that institutional investors will, can flee to safety in and use as an uncorrelated hedge. This is something that is a, is a direct analogy to Bitcoin that is, I think is very technically rigorous when you start thinking, when you open your mind about the concept of value, because, um, you know, uh, where is it? I have gold chain somewhere. I know <laughs> gold, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know what I mean? It's, it's absolutely, I mean, gold is insane. When you really think about it, uh, Ghana, Ghana's three main exports are um, oil, uh, gold and cocoa, right? So gold mining has been big. You know, my, some of my dad's first work was doing technology consulting for gold mining companies. And, um, you know, so I've been, I've been following this area for years and it's interesting, right? Um, the, but people take this stuff, they dig it up from the ground, you know, they refine it, they put it in airplanes, they fly it to other places. And then the other people grab it and they put it right back underground. Right. And, and they're like, and everybody's like, this is completely normal. Right. People, you know, we wear it, it's, it, it's shiny. So, you know, it's, it's had this, this cultural value for thousands of years. Right. But it's a particularly human and not necessarily rational thing. I've heard here and there, you know, if you look at the actual utility of gold, you know, as a, as a conductor, right, it's good in some, um, some dental and uh, technology applications. But if you, you know, what is the price per ounce based on those applications, maybe 60 or $100, right? It's just that it's become this asset class. And, and, and the people who have lots of money to allocate believe in it. That's really it. You know, it's, it's value existing in human investor consciousness that has that value. So once you understand those principles, that could be anything, right? Investors could decide tomorrow that it's platinum or that it is uh, Picasso's or that it is Bitcoin. It, this decision is up for human beings to make. So I don't see any um, technical barrier. And, you know, if you look at the run-up of gold in terms of funds moving in, ETFs launching, um, you can see that this exact same story could happen with Bitcoin. And then when you make that comparison, getting back to your point, you're like, people say, oh, these huge price rises. Well, the price rise in gold was huge, right? You know, it, it, you know if you move from $100 an ounce to uh, at the peak around 2000, that's a pretty huge rise, right? So once you compare the market caps, you realize that it's fixed. There's no supply response. As the price rises, the miners can't just go and dig more 
up out of the ground, it's fixed. So it is, it is actually designed to have this type of run up. And, um, and, and I, and I actually do think that that was maybe potentially contemplated by the original writers of the white paper, uh, due to the divisibility to eight decimal points. I don't see any other reason why you would uh, allow for the units to uh, to be that expansive, right? If you didn't if you didn't anticipate that you'd eventually be trading in very very small fractions of the of the core asset. Well, and actually, I'd say you know compare it to gold. Uh, gold, when the price rises, people can go find some you know new ways of of digging up gold and getting a bit more onto the market. With Bitcoin, you simply can't even do that. It's even more scarce than gold. It's you know, perhaps, you know, competing with time for one of the most scarcest resources in the universe. Um, so so any any increase in demand is going to have such a exponential effect. Yeah, you, you can do it. You can do you can mine more for two weeks and then the difficulty adjusts. Uh, so it's really uh, yeah, it's it's much more scarce than gold is in in regards to the supply response to the price going up. Um, and so when we think about institutional investors and we think about central banks in Africa, currently their Forex reserves are principally in US dollars and in euros, um, which, you know, that they are essentially subsidizing uh, these first world countries. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. Um, it's uh, the structure of Africa and uh, African countries is very curious. And um, if you take, uh, for example, the Francophone West African countries, they have a monetary union effectively uh, that's linked to the, to the euro. I mean, it's sorry, the, well, yeah, the real euro now, really, before the franc. And, um, and yes, you could make the argument that um, you know, this whole concept of import cover, holding reserves of particularly U.S. dollars um, to prevent your economy from shocks due to the you know, rise in prices or uh, low price so that you can cover all the things that you need. The grand irony is that the African continent um, has enough resources, diverse resources, that almost anything conceivable could be constructed from the resources that exist on the continent. You know, you have rare earth minimal, rare minerals, you have iron ore, you have so many uh, deposits of various things and, you, you know, uh, natural resources for hydropower, solar, arable land. Um, really, there should, it should, it should, it should be an inward focused economy. Um, and, you know, it's the legacy of uh, colonialism and these arbitrary uh, boundaries in Africa that, sustain this and, and ties to the international economy that uh, many people, uh, you know, my father has been a big advocate of, uh, of uh, figuring out ways of helping African countries and economies industrialize, develop and break the import dependence, right? Because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you hold all of these reserves just to, um, to facilitate imports, well, what, what, what could you use those, those, you know, could you use that instead to support Imports of productive machinery to build the the your local economies, um, and but you know part of that require a bigger market, and we have all of these arbitrary borders that prevent the 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 market from growing and developing the way that it should. And there've been a lot of efforts 
Um, so the the uh, the Anglophone West African countries, for example, the ones that speak English, have been working on a, uh, a currency called the ECO, and there are targets to create a common currency. They, you know, in theory, they're always supposed to have free movement of people, but it hasn't progressed as well as it should because some countries haven't always met their macroeconomic targets. So um, you know, I, I get your. I think your point is a very good point that you know um, this this regime that the central banks are following may not necessarily be in their best interest. You know, I, and I'm, I'm not a uh, PhD in economics, but I, I look at these things from practical standpoints, right? And when I look at it, uh, the structure of mo- many of these economies is bonkers, right? It doesn't make sense. The import, we import way too much and every government very in, in these places try and try to address it. Um, I wrote the article partially because I just wanted to raise a lot of awareness about the issues and also get people to think outside the box a little bit and say, Hey, this, this asset could potentially do some of the things you need to do, right? It could give you more funds that you could leverage for investment. It would allow you to start thinking collectively, you know, you may not need to come up with a new fiat currency if you all agree on one reserve currency and then down the line, come up with some sort of second layer solution that facilitates actual commerce amongst people similar to mold money, right? That, you know, that, that works very, that, you know, that has very easy uh, adoption, um, you know, and, 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 and that model has already been well proven, um, you know, that, 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 so, you know, there is a very, very reasonable path with Bitcoin at the core as a reserve asset for increased financial inclusion and um, getting rid of these, uh, what would I call them? These, uh, they're like bizarre uh, echoes of colonialism that have, that, 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 that uh, are reflected in the current economic structure of African countries that you could break with these types of assets. That's awesome. And I saw that you had put out a call also for having a Bitcoin core developer come to Ghana and help train the next generation. Uh, could you speak to that? Yeah, I'm still, I'm still open. Right. I've, you know, I, I, if, if there are any uh, developers who are watching this podcast, reach out to me on Twitter. Um, this is, you know, as I dig deeper, right? I, be- I believe, you know, um, my, my parents have been very disciplined. You know, they came from very modest means and I trained all of us to have a profession and to be technically competent. So amongst my siblings, I have a neurosurgeon, a PhD in business, another doctor. I'm a lawyer. We focus on technical proficiency in your chosen field. And if, if, if I'm making this call for these countries to invest in this asset, then they also need to have technical proficiency in the asset, right? Not be tourists, and, but get the, the skills in math, Python, C sharp sharp, anything, anything that's necessary, right? For them to, um, to, to actually really engage at the core, right? And, and, and one of the major reasons is the distributed ethos of this. If you work in banking, in some instances, let's say if you get a core banking provider, right? So not your distributed ledger, but your, your walled garden ledger of everybody's accounts in your bank, right? You know, um, your database provider may not give you the keys to the database. You may not be able to see the schema of the, of, of the database. Your core banking uh, provider is not going to let you review the source code. And, and edit it as you wish, right? They're, they're, you're going to have to talk to them and make. 
it, it, with this asset at the core of financial institutions, it's open source. So you now have the opportunity to level the playing field, right? And there are not as many barriers to entry from a technical standpoint so that you can actually have excellence and mastery and innovate from that base, right? Because like, as I, as I was saying, like, you know, we're, we're now getting into, uh, I think there's, I'm seeing that side chains are starting to really um, uh, uh, move from theory to practice. And uh, I feel that that is one of the uh, huge opportunities that actually, as you mentioned, is a potential moat for Bitcoin and Bitcoin similar blockchains in terms of the adoption of these second layer technologies that, um, that, 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 that needs to be studied by anybody who's in, who's, if you're, if you're going to take a portfolio strategy approach to this and allocate one to 10% of assets, you also need to allocate within that asset allocation funds for coding talent to, to, so that you actually understand what you're doing, right? You know, you don't want to be, you know, and people say, you know, oh, we've bought all this Bitcoin, but we don't really know how it works. <laughs> That'd be a little crazy, right? So you need to get the talent. So we're, we're open. We want people to come in. And I think that also will give people comfort, right? That will give people comfort because, um, and, you know, as I said, I'm not like a super expert in all these areas, but when I think about it, technically, there are groups of people that control this asset, right? You know, there are people who can, who can edit the code on GitHub and people who can't, right? You know, they, they may not be controlled by a single party, but they, those are individuals, right? They're human beings. And so you could argue that those, if, if, if you could make an argument that for some reason they all decided to act in the same way, that's a control party, right? So, you know, you, you know you, that, that group of people needs to be expanded and diversified. And the only way that that can happen is by the people who already know to come and help other people learn what they know, right? So uh, I'm very passionate about that uh, topic. I, you know, when my dad was doing um, consulting, he was helping companies with Deloitte and Touche. He brought Deloitte and Touche to West Africa and he would help companies uh, put in automation, software systems, accounting systems, banking software. And I, he gave me a bunch of books, you know, programming books and other things. I read them a little bit, wasn't really good at concentrating on them. And there, and, but the biggest thing that was missing was a social environment where there are a lot of people who are into it, who can lead you along the way because it's fun and that's what they're doing in their free time. And I think, and I want to use uh, this opportunity to try and get some people to come in and help build that culture. Yeah, I definitely agree that the community around it is very motivating and very, um, it's, it's hard to work in isolation on something, uh, and to stay motivated on it. But if you have a team that's working with you and we see that with the Bitcoin core team. So for example, here in New York city, there's a group called chain code labs that employs several of the Bitcoin core developers. And it really helped me get interested into the code base by having conversations with the people at Chain Code Labs and by them essentially, you know, informally mentoring me and pointing me in the right direction. So I 100% agree. And I really hope that uh, if one of our listeners today is, you know, knows C++, knows Python, has contributed to Bitcoin Core and wants to really make a difference in the world, uh, get in touch with Chiefy. And 
uh, I really hope that we get something to, to happen. Yes. I, I thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, because this is, as I said, it's, this is like a passion for me, you know, this, and this is something, um, our group has a university, uh, that we started to science and technology well, in business university. Those are real focus. And we did it because we want people to have these skills. And I think it's just, it's just a fantastic opportunity. Um, and, you know, and look, um, I'm, this is not also charity or not also, this is not um, something that I'm looking at from, uh, oh, you know, come and help the poor Africans. No, um, actually, this is something where even if you are um, for, if you are for your professional development, right, I think one of the things that um, we, we always see in technology is groupthink, blinders, and exposing yourself to different cultures and different economies, different ways that things work, um, gives people an analytical edge. Uh, furthermore, uh, if you think practically about adoption of these technologies, um, I've read a number of good articles where people say, okay, we understand the, the, the premise of this technology, but in developed economies where there's high levels of trust already in these institutions that manage these uh, value, you're going to have an uphill battle in terms of adoption, and I think that's correct. But in, there, in, in developing countries where that infrastructure is not there, that's actually where the biggest user adoption opportunity is, because in many cases there is distrust of these systems that manage value. So it's, it's not, you know, in a country where there's hyperinflation or where there are even just regular inflation moves, you don't have to explain to people what really inflation is and, you know, or currency or asset hedging. They already do it. They already hold baskets of various currencies. They already pay attention to these things. And um, so I think it's actually the perfect environment where you can actually see new um, user adoption and, and a lot of these new use cases um, develop where, you know, you, you may actually get a, um, uh, you may actually have a, a more, uh, rewarding from a business and um, uh, intellectual standpoint, addressing addressing these issues in these markets. Yeah, I think you made a great point there about the currency stability because here in the U.S., we'll hear people, you know, like like Jamie Dimon, be like, "Oh, you know, bitcoins are, are useless. What are you like? They're useless." And then he says, "Unless you live in Ecuador or North Korea, where the government doesn't have a good money, it's like." Okay, but do you realize that's a large percentage of the world? Like, yes, yes, yes. It was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, his comments were were funny. Um, you know, Jamie Dimon's a, a great, 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 interesting uh, guy. Very prolific business uh, track record in banking. And you know, when I heard the comments initially, um, you know, he mentioned that his daughter had invested and. I think maybe she's been ha harassing him about it or something. It's like, you know, like dad, you see how much money I've made? Maybe he's a little annoyed about that, about his daughter pressing her about, you know, her Bitcoin investments. Um, it was interesting to see him walk them back a bit, right? And, and it was also a little bit of cognitive dissonance because if you have, you know, if you, you know, if you, you know, there's been a lot of work by JP Morgan in terms of Ethereum and Hyperledger, I believe, right? So they, 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 they have, been paying attention to the blockchain space. Um, and, but I, I, you know, I think that 
there, the history of Bitcoin in particular is difficult and challenging for people. You know, some of the episodes that occurred, uh, Mt. Gox and Silk Road in particular, make people um, wary of it. Uh, and there's still this perception that it facilitates things that are, um, you know, morally reprehensible for some people. But I always, whenever I look at it, I, I'm always like, you know, I mean, I, as I said, I'm in the legal industry. Part of my job has been to look for the bad things and stop them. And so when I, when I, when I think about this, I'm like, I mean, in 2018, which criminal wants to put his or her criminal activity in a computer? That seems to be the worst place in my view, you know, regardless of your current view of technology, right? Why would I want to put, make an immutable record of whatever transaction I have. There's not a, a stable quantum computer now, but potentially there will be. And so, you know, it could just be a matter of a number of years where all of your transactions are easily known by a quantum computer with some level of machine learning and AI. And, you know, you could, you could, you could, if you put your science fiction hat on, you could see a future where some of the censorship starts to go away, right? And that's where. You know, I think that in terms of the, the new technologies that are coming up, I think that they will facilitate that the most. But I think that for Bitcoin in particular, I actually think that a lot of the, the, the promise will be the exact opposite. It's going to be people who actually want to telegraph what they hold for trust and facilitation of transactions. Right. Because right. if you if, you know, right, even like right now, today, right, um, you know, you could you could replace uh, letters of credit and other types of trust mechanisms um, using full nodes where people can see the balances in certain accounts and use them as, as, as hedges or proof of funds for various types of transactions. So I, um, you know, uh, I, I Jamie Dimon is as a clearly a brilliant guy and there are a lot of people, but I think it's, I think anybody over the age of 65 has a very hard time, you know, digesting magical internet money. It's just, it's, it's just, it's just going to be tough. You know, it's, it's like, you know, this is anathema to everything that they have spent their whole lives working hard to achieve and to manage. Right. And now you want to tell people they're going to store their money in this distributed something that these, what are they called? Cypherpunks? You know, they're, 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 once you yeah. see, they're going to just stop right there and say, excuse me, it's lunchtime. Please sit down and this thing will blow up in a few years. I, I don't want to hear anymore. I think it would be interesting if a few of the African central banks got together and created a multi-sig wallet mm -hmm. so that it's kind of impervious to uh, any sort of corruption. And it's out there on the public ledger that, hey, this is our collateral. Now we can borrow against this. Um, I, I hope that they follow through on that. I think that's the that's a really good model. But uh, you know, there's obviously it's kind of uh, far fetched that the central banks would be so open minded that they would do this uh, anytime soon. But at the same time, uh, in Africa, it's the, you mentioned that there are you know it, it, disposable income is a challenge. But at the same time, there's a burgeoning middle class. And there are plenty of successful businesses uh, that if they decide that they want to adopt this new monetary standard and throw themselves into the 21st century, uh, that they can do that without getting anyone's permission. And I, 
Are, are there Bitcoin exchanges already established on the African continent? Yes, there are. There are quite a number of them. I mean, um, most places use um, things like local Bitcoins, right? Yeah. Um, you know, but there are exchanges that were started on the continent and there are more that are coming. I think that we will see uh, a little bit of an explosion. I know there's some that start in Nigeria. There's ones, uh, a number of them that are coming up in Ghana. There's a few out of South Africa. Um, you know, I know there's, there are exchanges in Zimbabwe, definitely. Right. Um, the, um, the, the point that you, you know, you're making about, um, uh, how it will fit into finance though. Um, I am actually a, um, I'm not so, um, bullish on the concept of the ex- Bitcoin in particular exchange in its current iteration. Right. Um, I think that, you know, that the trading mentality also uh, throws people off the asset class because they worry about people who get hurt, right? You know, people who bought at 18, 19,000, right? Who are sitting at home, not wanting to tell anybody that they mortgaged their house and bought Bitcoin. I hope that nobody does that, right? You know, it's supposed to take, uh, 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 um, you know, just hold on tight, but, 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 but don't, people shouldn't do that. But I, you know, those stories are probably, there are probably a few stories like that. Right. And uh, the volatility can throw people off. I think that, as you mentioned, um, you know, well, first let me respond to that. People are definitely buying it on the continent. There are a lot of people buying. I, I hear here and there, people find their ways to buy and people had been involved uh, in my original email. I, you know, there were actually in 2013, numerous places where you could exchange perfect money, US dollars, Ghana CDs, various currencies for Bitcoin. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a community that's been there for quite a while actively using it. Right. Um, You know, Ghana is a gold trading hub. So, you know, this, this concept is not uh, far-fetched for people, you know, in, in certain sectors, but I, I am actually very excited about, people using it in the portfolio um, sense where anybody who has assets that are saved allocates at least 1% to this asset and then uses it strategically as a component of their, their portfolio. Right. So they, they borrow against it. Right. And, and that's, that's where, you know, in my mind, the way that I see uh, Bitcoin, like what the first thing that made me very excited about it was its potential as collateral because I've, I've studied, uh, land is collateral in various jurisdictions, and it's always a pain. You know, it's it's um, you know in some places you may get your legal judgment, but taking possession of the land is difficult. Uh, even in, in the U.S., a good lawyer in the right state can stretch out a you know a collection for two, three, four years. Um, as collateral, um, you know, with the right, as you said, like either with multi-sig wallets, right, um, or even with um, what is currently happening right now, which is, you know, most people who have this asset trust third parties with their private keys. That's how it works, you know, for the Coinbase user for so and, and that people are advertising and for some people, right, like, you know, I don't want my mother to be holding managing private keys. She's not going to pick up a ledger wallet. At, no, you know what I mean? So for certain people, you know, by their nature and their stature, they are used to having other trusted people doing things for them. And for some people like that, having a bank be the custodian of their keys, they will like that. They'll like the insurance. They'll like the protection against hacking. And they'll like the ability for that bank to forward them cash against that asset. And it's a perfectly, uh, perfectly, you know, a great version of collateral because 
the you know the land registry the blockchain is there you can see the balances and um, you can I, so I, I think that the, that in Africa right I'm hoping to see a very vibrant uh, uh, view of how this works even outside of just okay let's go on the exchange and trade and you know you see all the charts and everything that everybody's sharing and all it's like okay these things are very interesting and you guys are very good at trading but it's very difficult for people to get into and I'm not necessarily sure that technical trading is the best use of human brain power right I think that you know it's it's it is it can make you some money but like what value are we adding to society by studying bitcoin charts right you know I think that with with a with a real story on the appreciation of the price of bitcoin which i think is i think it's it's very real you know there are papers out there that have you know technically established that you know it can it it it, it can actually reduce risk with a small enough the right allocation in, in, a, in a portfolio um so when i look at it from that standpoint i'm thinking this is just a really wonderful thing that people could use to um you know, generate wealth and, and manage their savings more effectively. Um, you know, if you, if you live in a country where the currency depreciates on average five to 20% per annum, right. You know, just 1% of your savings in an asset like Bitcoin that has a potentially exponential appreciation is a really wonderful thing for, for, for that person, you know, and as you said, censor, it's, is still censorship resisted. Um, and so, you know, the rest of your portfolio can inflate and move and change, but you've got a good hedge in there helping you um, um, have multi-generational savings, even from a very modest beginning. Because, you know, on a, on a long enough time horizon, $100, $10, $1 could, could make your, you know, your ancestors rich if invested, right? Due to the compounding, right? It's just basic math. So as long as it just sits there, any piece of money that you just leave and never touch invested in the right allocation will become a lot of money eventually due to compounding. It's just, it's just bad. It's funny because you, you came to this conclusion analytically, you know, by looking at the math, uh, the Bitcoin community stumbled into it and now has this meme of hodl, buy and hodl. And so it's, and it's, this meme is, didn't just come out of nowhere. It came from, endless stories of people losing their shirts, trying to time the market and trying to trade around instead of just doing the simple but effective buy and hodl. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always, it's funny. Like if you look at back to the LinkedIn post, um, um, I, always, I always find investing very interesting, right? Because, you know, we, that's what our group does. We invest, is we hold our money, we hold other people's money, we invest it. And so you have to start learning to try and predict the future. And if you are a humble person, you know that it's impossible. You can't do it, right? You, you, you're making reason risks, right? So everything is a gamble. And there's been this uh, financial services industrial complex full of people who are trying to make people believe that it's not, right? But very rarely does anybody get up at, at a financial services firm and before they talk, show you a chart showing all of their calls and, and the success of their calls over time, right? And then, you know, they don't have a number below them that says this person predicts the future with X percent before they speak, right? And if they were to do that, we'd re people would realize that a lot of the assets that they think are very safe are not, 
right? Because you, you, you just, it's just, you can't do it. It's, there's, I, I don't think it's possible. So um, the, you know, the, the, that approach, right? Is take your, take the assets. You, I look at it when I try to explain it to other people, I say, take it as a long-term, you know, long-term hedge, right? And, and people understand that portfolio logic very well. A lot of people do because there are certain things that you hold in your portfolio, just per, they're just a hedge, right? And when they look at it that way, you can just hold on to it for long term and see what happens, right? Um, because you can't predict the future. You cannot time the market. Um, you know, I, I when I first started um, trading, um, you know, just casually, I would... Uh, you know, at, at some points you try and think, okay, I think there's this move or that move. And that's actually where I uh, fell into Warren Buffett pretty early, right? Because he doesn't really, you know, he comes up with strategies to get assets at a discount and holds on to them. And like he actually, he is the original uh, holder, right? This is Warren Buffett. He is, you know, I mean, he, he actually is. And Berkshire Hathaway is now that I think about it, that you brought it up, Berkshire Hathaway shares are actually very Bitcoin-esque, right? Because because they don't do stock splits, right? So you have this massive appreciation in price over time, and, and, and it's designed actually to create long-term stability and encourage long-term holding of the of, of the of the shares, right? And you know, and when Google IPO, they talked about how they follow him, they want to do something similar, right? And so the 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 that concept is in my view, one of the best ways to look at investing, you know, you pick things that you never really want to sell. Right. You know, and um, I believe that for stocks, I believe that for, so like usually when I um, advise people, not as an official investment advisor or whatever, you know, I tell people, uh, people ask me now a lot about, Hey, I want to buy Bitcoin. Can you sell me a Bitcoin? This, this, that. And I always ask them a series of questions first. I say, okay, how much debt do you have? Um, you know, have you, you know, what's your plan to pay it off? What are your financial objectives? When do you attend to retire? What inve- other investments do you have? What's your portfolio strategy? And then you allocate this, this little, little amount. And in, in anything that I recommend to anybody, I always tell them to look at their assets as things that they never, ever want to sell. Right. And the reason why I look at Bitcoin as collateral is because it, it fits perfectly with that mentality. You hold on to the Bitcoin, you never sell it. You borrow against it. If you need, if you need to take some cash off the table, borrow against it, and then um, um, uh, and, and use that. And I actually also um, advise people, you know, once again, not professionally, similar with against their four hundred one k. You can get a loan against your four hundred one k and use every various things and investment portfolios. It just makes a lot of sense to leverage your long term assets, in my view. As long as it's for a productive investment and not just to go buy a Lambo. Yes, don't buy a Lamborghini. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you 100 percent on that point, right? Like, uh, you know, it's 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 a, uh, and that's and I guess that gets that gets to uh, one of the major things philosophically when I look at Bitcoin. Um, after I really got into it. Uh, I started advocating people to get, it, get get into, you know, I, on Thanksgiving, I went around the room and was like, you know, inviting everybody to Coinbase and giving them Litecoin at the time. I said, here, here, take this, you know? And, um, and then, and, you know, but then I realized that psychologically it, it messes with people. It, you know, when they see the price appreciation and this, this, that, it tempts people to just over allocate or to try and trade too much. And psychologically, so, my stance, I try and focus on, yes, if you're going to get into it, um, 
just buy it and forget about it. Don't look at the charts. Definitely don't read the news, right? I was just on Bloomberg and the top story is about how everybody's afraid that Kraken is going to be Mount Gox, right? You know, it's, you know, that's still the top story. It's live, right? You can go log on now and trade and see your balances, right? So the news, news is very behind what's actually really happening. So uh, HODL is the, is the way to go. Near the beginning of the conversation, you had made a reference to security and said uh, maybe we'd get to that. And uh, I wanted to tie that into a, a bigger question, which is that let's imagine that the Bank of Ghana or uh, specifically if, if they decide to be intelligent um, or just the people, the people of Africa themselves start to uh, purchase Bitcoin. Um, as, this, as this adoption occurs, what are specific challenges you see that developing economies will face that perhaps we don't think about in our you know, uh, developed American economy? I think um, the, biggest, the biggest risks are people getting hurt from trading that we just discussed, right? Um, people over-leveraging, going in, taking uh, risky bets, because there could always be a nuclear winter for a little while, right? Excuse me, which I, I would find, you know, personally be great. Because, oh, cheap Bitcoins for five years. But, um, but, uh, but you know, it could, it could very well happen for legitimate reasons, right, while the technology develops, Okay. You know, um, a bunch of people could buy a bunch of ICOs and realize that it takes five years to develop what they want to get stable as a product and then be like, oh, I don't want this thing anymore. And then start selling them. Right. So something could happen. That's a risk for these economies, because one of the first questions I got to my article was, look, we're poor countries. We can't afford to gamble on Bitcoin. If you can't predict the future, investing is gambling. Right. If you, you know, if you cannot predict it with certain like 100 percent certainty, that means that there's risk. So it's a, it's always a degree of risk. Right. You know, so, you know, you're taking reasonable bets. But so in, in, in the African context, um, you know, when you do make a mistake, it's not that we're not going to build a new subway system. It's that, you know, people don't have enough money to be educated properly and to uh, to 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 have uh, you know, a, just a decent quality of life. It, the, the risk is, you know, hospitals, schools, farms can be built with the money. So I think the biggest risk is probably that those, those fluctuations and what they would do psychologically and potentially without the right discipline strategy, they could, they could folk, you know, a country or individuals would get hurt by buying in now let's say if a period where the price of Bitcoin goes to a thousand dollars for five years, right? People could get very hurt and lose a lot of value by losing faith in selling, right? If this is part of the portfolio strategy. So it, it ha- that's one of the reasons why I'm sort of like, as I said, I'm light on ex- the exchange mentality. I'm, I'm more into the portfolio strategy where you're, at, where you're showing it to people as a concept of prudent financial management in their portfolio and they have, you know, very reasonable allocation they hold over the long term. And then, it, and then they get the, the benefit that way. Um, you know, the other risks I see are um, there already is a lot of uh, fraud from, from locally and from other places. So people who are interested in fraud pay attention to a lot of these economies because they, they, they see targets, they see banks, they see other institutions that may not have best-in-class security. So I worry about hacking risk 
I, I mean, I, I, I really, I worry. And the, one of the worst things that could happen for adoption on the continent would be for an exchange to start and get hacked. So that's another reason why I, I'm, I actually believe that, you know, people should come up with ways for people to invest without having a hot wallet on in, in the, in the service that basically, you know, you invest and it's all in cold storage. So there's no real risk of, of people losing their investment. Um, but, but these are the two big, the two big ones I see are um, not having prudent portfolio strategy and trading too much to get hurt. And then also the technical risks of theft so that, you know, bad actors would, you know, what if all these central banks come in and North Korea is like, give me all those big ones <laughs> and they're gone. That would be a problem that nobody would want. Uh, so these, these are, these are the two, the two big things I see. We're hitting an hour. So I think that uh, we learned a lot about where you're coming from, Chiefy, and uh, the the vision you have, which I think is uh, a very realistic vision. Yeah, you know, it, it it's not obviously things don't ever play out the way exactly we want them to, but if I think about the way Bitcoin is evolving as an asset and how the Bitcoin network itself is evolving, uh, we're we're moving towards a world where. Uh, it's very much seen as more of a store of value than uh, some kind of crazy uh, payment system that can do, you know, instant a million transactions per second on chain. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have these level two innovations like Lightning uh, that I think that over the next few years are going to prove themselves to be very helpful uh, in all sorts of contexts where traditional payment services are unavailable. Um, so I think that. Uh, it kind of has both narratives going for it, uh, and people have gotten a little impatient <laughs> with it, uh, especially within the Bitcoin community, because we're so used to things moving a million miles per hour. Um, but it, it helps to get the context of, uh, look, we need to have the whole world working on this. Uh, and it, if that means that, you know, we need to help people catch up, then that's what needs to happen. Right. And, and people can participate in all sorts of ways. For example, post uh, a how-to online of how to use a Raspberry Pi and a SD card to run a full node, right? You know, is it, you know, how do you, um, um, one of the things I will tell you about the whole argument, they can closing is that there actually is um, interest there's real technical interest from regulators and other and investors. So um, this, this is something that yes, could be real. And on the concept that you raised the fees and all the other fights within the community, I, I think that those things are noise um, in my view. And, you know, everybody who's involved in this, at this stage is early in my, and also in my view and probably has the people on each side of the debate have a lot more common with each other than the average person. So a lot of the acrimony and other things, I don't really understand. I'm like, this is really funny. I watch it. I get a popcorn. I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. But the reality of it is it's like, why are you guys fighting over this? Like use it as collateral. Okay. And then once you figure out all the technical work, which will take time, right. You know, you can use the fiat rails, that exists like Visa and other things for fast transactions. And then you can, you know, the story, I think the, all that really emanates from this idea that Bitcoin will replace fiat money and, and then lead to the dissolve, you know, dissolving governments and other things, which I wouldn't put, I wouldn't bet on that. 
<laughs> I wouldn't bet on that occurring. I would, I would, I would bet on Bitcoin existing as a new asset class with an interesting philosophy behind it that makes the world a more fair place. That's where I, I, I see it. Um, so I, you know, I, I appreciate you guys for uh, giving me the time to ramble on about uh, these things. And um, I'm, I'm very positive that we'll get a good response on this argument that, you know, that I think, I think a central bank may do it. I, I think there's, there's a few that people have mentioned. There's certain names that keep getting popping up that, oh, this, this one country, if anybody's going to do it, they're going to do it. And so, and so there people are, are listening. The response in Ghana was my most popular Facebook post ever, like over 200, I think, you know, ton, uh, tens of thousands of likes on the post. And um, it's been, it's been very exciting. So, um, uh, oh, the last thing I'll mention is, yes, anybody who's watching who's a, a very sharp developer, you know, come to Ghana. <laughs> It'll be fun. When you said the university is right by the beach, so. It's by the beach, yes. The food is good. It's, a, it's an exciting, fast-paced environment, and you get to hang out with me. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, I, you know, this, this is um, a lot of fun. I'm more casual than I usually am. You know, usually, uh, uh, but um, it's this space is just so exciting that any opportunity I have to, you know, talk about it, learn more from from you guys and, and the community is just fantastic. Well, we hope to have you back on and we hope that when you do come back on, you'll have good news, uh, whether it's a central bank uh, taking you on as a consultant to, uh, you know, improve their portfolio allocation or a, a developer making the move to Ghana and, uh, you know, hel helping build out Bitcoin infrastructure in Africa. My fingers are crossed. I, I, I'm very optimistic. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. This was, this was a real pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, Chiefy. Bye. Tactics to flank slash shift a ferocious analyzer from paralysis to go. Meaning, uh, what, someone who overthinks yeah, things and, and hesitates all Planning and planning and planning and planning. Well, there's a couple things here. If, if the person is above you or below you in the chain of command. So if they're below you in the chain of command, you you know, you know explain to them. You say, look, we don't need perfection. We're not going to have a 100% solution. We don't have 100% of the information. That's a good enough solution. We need to move forward. Let's execute. Um, and you know what? I'll take if things go wrong. Don't worry about it. I'll take responsibility for it. I'm not going to blame you, which is what you're going to do anyways as a good leader. So that's what you're going to do if they're below you in the chain of command. If they're above you in the chain of command, guess what? Same thing. You're going to tell the same thing like, hey, boss, we don't need perfection here. Look, boss, we're not going to get all the information we need. We're not going to get a 100% solution. We got a 90% solution. And let's go for it. And if things do go wrong, you can blame me. I don't care. So boom, whether they're above you or you know below you in the chain of command, you might change your tact or your verbiage a little bit, but it's the same same overall concept. You got to get them to understand that we don't need perfection. We need to move forward. And the other thing is, you explain the cost of not moving, the cost of staying still, the cost of being reactive instead of proactive, and basically the cost of not being aggressive because that's what we're talking about is a lack of aggression. And so, what does that look like? Well, you explain to them that the longer we sit the better position the enemy gets into. The longer we wait, the less we know about what is actually happening. Think about that one. 
The more you sit here and you're planning, the less we know what's going on out there. The things are happening. Mm. They're changing. They're evolving. The enemy is maneuvering. Mm. There's developments on the battlefield or in the marketplace, and you don't even know because you're sitting in the planning space. Mm. The longer we wait, the less time we have to recover if something does go wrong. Mm. So if we sit here and plan for 47 days, and on the 48th day, we step out and we start to execute and something goes wrong, well, we're not going to make the 50-day mark because we spent all that time planning. So the longer that you're sitting around, the less time you have to recover and adapt and adjust. And the longer that you wait while you're doing planning, the less relevant your plan actually becomes. So that's what you need to make people understand. And there's people that are just habitual and chronic ferocious analyzers Mm -hmm. and those are the people you gotta watch but you gotta continually just get through their head that the more we sit the more the enemy maneuvers and if we let them maneuver on us anymore we're gonna get killed Mm. that's it pretty easy no it's not easy it's a simple concept it's hard to get people out of their own heads just like just like everything else it's hard for the ferocious analyzer to recognize themselves as that they think they're doing a good job they think they're they think they're actually being thorough and you're a wild man you're a cowboy yeah. are you crazy <laughs> yeah no i'm not crazy i remember one time I, my first deployment to iraq they said hey john this is after i'd been there for a while and they wanted for some reason they wanted to know the minimum requirements for us to go out on an operation and i said i just need a vicinity of the target and of radio frequency to talk to the local uh, conventional units there mm. and they were like well don't you need air support don't you need this? And I was like all these other things I was like no we'll figure it out mm. just send us yeah we'll go and there was other things that we would do as we'd move to a target we'd align things up and we'd but we we'd be good yeah but sometimes people wanted to plan out every last detail yeah. and that doesn't work the details are not gonna stay the same the yeah. things that you're planning on are gonna change so yeah. don't sit there and plan every last detail because it's not going to help you. Man, that's that's actually a pretty good point. I never even thought about how you say if you spend too, mu- too much time planning, you know, and then you jump in the game all late. It's like, dang, you have no time to make any nope, adjustments. Can't react. You, oh, you it better go perfect because that's, that's the one <laughs> shot you got at it. And guess what? It's not going to go perfect because things don't go perfect. Yeah. Things are yeah. not going to go perfect. Not going to happen. No such thing as flawless execution. Dave Burke just wrote an article that was on. Business Insider. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Like flawless execution doesn't happen. Yeah. He, you know, he was a f- top gun senior instructor for three years. He 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 knows about flying, yeah. and he knows how hard they worked to, to towards flawless execution. But it didn't exist. The flawless execution was was analyzing their mistakes, seeing what they can improve upon. That was the flawless execution for them. Yeah. It wasn't the actual act of flawless execution. They, you know, what they had flawless debriefing. Mm. Flawless analyzation of what they did wrong. Yeah, but it wasn't gonna be perfect ops and no, no such thing doesn't happen Yeah, so if you're sitting and planning that trying to make that happen. It's not gonna work for you. Yeah, so don't do it